Heavenly Father, we do desire that all glory would go to your name. And Lord, we need to hear from you. We need to hear from your inspired word, your truth. God, we need your truth to renew our minds, to realign our hearts with yours to motivate us to obedience, not just to be hearers of the Word, but doers. We need Your Spirit to work through the preaching of Your Word this morning. God, words and language is, is the means by which You chose to communicate to us, and those words, those letters are empty unless the Holy Spirit works through them and is in them to affect our hearts. So I ask that you would do that mighty work, the, only, the work that only you can do by your Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, we're going to go through verses 1 all the way to 24 this morning. Matthew 11, starting in verse 1. says this, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then 
he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. In you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You may have heard about this. In 2018, Morabito Consultants, a structural engineering firm, submitted a report to the Champlain Towers South Condominium in Florida. In their report, they noted significant structural problems in the underground parking garage that needed, and I quote, immediate attention. There were cracks in the foundation, signs of deterioration in the supportive columns. They sent the detailed report with picture evidence and a strong plea to take immediate action and repair. On June 24th, 2021, the Champlain Towers South Condominium Building collapsed. And 98 people perished in the tragedy. The warnings were not considered, repairs were not made, and the consequences were catastrophic. John the Baptist has delivered a dire warning to the people of Israel. Jesus Christ, the King, has followed, delivering the same warning. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In Matthew 11, we are told they rejected the warning. They did not repent. And Jesus says they would suffer catastrophic, eternal consequences for that decision. The message of this text and the message for us today is this. Don't reject the call of the king. Don't reject the call of the king and his herald, John the Baptist. Repent. Repent of your sins and receive the Christ for salvation. Don't reject him. Let's walk through this text. I have four points, and you can see them in the outline. Point number one, we see the herald is doubting. The herald is doubting. You remember what a herald is? A herald is a forerunner who goes before the king and proclaims his arrival. And Jesus' great herald is John the Baptist. We've covered this already. But here in this text... We see the great herald doubting. But before he's doubting, we see that he is in prison. Now, why is he in prison? Matthew tells us later in chapter 14. 
It says, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. So why is John in prison? He's calling out the affair of Herod and Herodias, the sinful affair. And so he's in prison under the command of Herod, and Josephus, the historian, reports reports that John was imprisoned at Herod's palace called Machiris, which was a fortress built atop a steep hill east of the Dead Sea, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And from this prison, John hears of the continued work of Jesus around Galilee. Jesus is preaching, teaching, and healing. And so John sends his messengers with this doubting question. Verse 3, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? In other words, are you sure you're the Christ? Because I'm unsure. The great herald is doubting. Wait a minute, John, come on. Why are you all of a sudden doubting that Jesus is the Christ? Isn't He the one that you declared to be the Son of God? Isn't Jesus the one you said would take away the sins of the world? Isn't He the one you said ranks before you? The one whose sandal you're unworthy to untie? Why are you all of a sudden doubting, John? Come on, you know better than this. Why is John doubting? There could be a couple reasons why. Maybe it's because he's in prison. Difficult circumstances. And he's thinking to himself, wait a minute, if I am really the king's herald, why am I suffering in prison? Why have these difficult circumstances come into my life? Can you relate with John? Maybe in the midst of difficulty you find yourself doubting? Maybe it's because of that. Maybe it's because John thought that Jesus would have already wiped the floor with the Roman government. Maybe John had this idea of Jesus coming to first reign to take political control. Maybe he thought that by now Jesus would be on the throne over the Roman Empire, actually getting rid of the Roman Empire and bringing in the kingdom. But he sees that's not the case. Jesus is found doing what? He's preaching, teaching, and healing. So maybe that's why John doubted. But whatever the case is, the great John the Baptist succumbed to momentary doubt. And isn't that helpful for us? Isn't that instructive for us? Those of us who do sometimes momentarily doubt or struggle with doubt. It's not uncommon. Even the greatest man is not a sinless man. Even the godly can have momentary relapses. Even the mature need reminders of assurance. Do you sometimes doubt? Even some of you mature Christians, do you find yourself doubting? And where do you go with your doubts? Do you tend to isolate, kind of downward spiral alone, you and your brain, you and your thoughts? Or... Do you have the sense of John who at least knows, I need to take my doubts to Jesus. I need to confirm with the source. 
I'm going to send my messengers to him and ask him directly, are you the Christ? Give me some assurance here. Maybe that's instructive for us where we should be taking our doubts when we struggle. And so John sends his messengers to Jesus and Jesus gives John assurance through two reminders. And these are going to be helpful for us to have assurance through our own doubts. Two reminders. Number one, the fulfilled promises of God. And number two, the faithful blessing of God. The fulfilled promises of God and the faithful blessing of God. First, the fulfilled promises. Jesus quotes almost verbatim the prophet Isaiah. From Isaiah 29, uh, 35, and 61. Jesus quotes a promise and shows John, look at what you're seeing and hearing. It is exactly what Isaiah promised. Look at the fulfilled promises of God. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. See, John, you need to hear, you need to see which promises are being fulfilled now so that you have assurance and confidence that the rest of them will be fulfilled later. Maybe I'm not on the throne now, but I will be later because right now I'm fulfilling these promises. And you can have assurance, confidence that the rest are still coming. Think about your life. When your current circumstances are difficult, Maybe you take a pay cut. Maybe you lose a loved one. One who is really an anchor in your faith. Maybe you lose the one who shared the gospel with you. Maybe things are just hard for a variety of reasons. And you're concerned about the future. You wonder, is God going to see this through with me? You need to remember that God is a promise-fulfilling God. He's fulfilled His promises to you. And that's not going to stop. He's provided your every need up to this point. Amen? He's loved you thus far, forgiven you, washed you, cleansed you of your sin. What makes you think He's not going to provide for you in the future? Why do you doubt that He will see your salvation through? Why are you succumbing to the accusations of the enemy when He's been faithful? thus far. And he continues to be faithful in your life. When you have times of doubt, you need to consider the promises of God. And you know where you find those? In his word. Go back to the word. Recite those promises that you've seen fulfilled in history and fulfilled in your own life and reassure your heart. Reinstate confidence in the God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. So how will He not also, through Him, graciously give us all things? He will. He's proven Himself faithful thus far. Trust God with your future because He's already fulfilled promises in your past and He continues in your presence. So when you doubt, you need to first remember His fulfilled promises. Secondly, Jesus reminds John of His faithful blessing. Of his faithful blessing. Look at verse 6. He says, And by the way, John, add this blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, I don't think that that's a threat. 
Like, John, you better not be defended by me or offended by me or you won't be blessed. I don't think it's taken that way. I think rather he's confirming to John that the suffering that you're experiencing for my sake, you will find blessing through that. Heavenly blessing. Maybe not earthly blessing, but heavenly blessing. He says, when you stay loyal to me, John, even in the midst of this suffering, you're blessed. You're favored by God and you'll receive an eternal reward. If you confess me, John, before men like you have, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. John, they can take away your life. They can take away your rights, your comforts, your money, the shirt off your back, but they can't take away the blessing that's promised to those who are faithful, even faithful through persecution. Matthew 5. You know, Jim Elliott, the great missionary, once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Even when the going gets tough, Christian, don't give up eternal blessing, the favor of God, the assurance you have in Him. Don't give that up for the things of this world, but remain faithful to Christ and you will be blessed. You'll be blessed if you don't forsake Him. Remember His faithful blessing. And even through the light and momentary affliction, know that there is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Keep your eyes on the prize, on the blessings of God, in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your struggle. And that will give you assurance. So when you're struggling with doubt, and when you struggle with doubt, again, it's not uncommon. It's okay to confess that. Remember the fulfilled promises of God and remember His faithful blessing. Remind your heart of these truths that you'll find in Scripture. And it'll be a soothing ointment to the doubt that rises up in your heart. So the herald is doubting. Jesus ministers to him. And then point number two, we see the herald is exalted. The herald is exalted. Now, the crowd might look at this whole situation and they might look down on John. Like, wow, the great herald. Even the herald is doubting. And so lest they look down on John, Jesus seeks to lift him up. Wants to show them John's great privilege, John's great honor, his great position, his great value in his eyes. And so as they went away, in verse 7, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He asked a bunch of rhetorical questions. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, the obvious answer is no. He was more like an oak, firmly rooted. John was a strong prophet, a strong preacher. Another rhetorical question. What, what did you go out to see? A, a man dressed in soft clothing? No. This man wore camel's hair. He said, behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. John was out in the wilderness proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So what's Jesus' point thus far? Listen, John was not a soft and squishy man. He wasn't. He was a strong bulwark of truth. He was tough in the truth. He was not easily broken. He's a faithful prophet. And he fulfilled his purpose. 
purpose. He was more than a prophet, in fact. If you look down at verse 10, this is the one of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before the Lord. He is the king's herald. There's not a higher position in all the earth than to be the one who introduces the world to the king. And that's what John did. John did that faithfully. John did that excellently. He fulfilled his purpose. And his name will be remembered among the greats. Nay, before the greats. Because John is the greatest, Jesus says. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. In other words, outside of the king himself, there's not a greater honor, privilege, or position than to be the faithful herald of the king. I'm mindful that Jesus says these things, look at verse 7, as they went away. I believe he said these things with an earshot of his messenger. And how encouraging do you think it was for these messengers to overhear these great statements as they walk away? Great statements about their leader. Reinforce confidence in the Christ and in John the Baptist. Jesus publicly affirmed him. And I'm convinced that these encouragements were brought to the ears of John. And his faith was encouraged, bolstered, strengthened as he heard Christ's response. And I believe here we even find a lesson in encouragement from Jesus. A little principle here that we see in the text of a great leader encouraging his servant. Encouraging his servant. Not only did he exalt the greatness of John and and his role as a herald for the king, but the importance of public affirmation. Jesus does not flatter him. Jesus doesn't say anything that is untrue. He publicly exalts his servant and he puts his strengths on full display. And I think it's important for leaders, for parents, for friends, for brothers and sisters in Christ to publicly affirm each other, to encourage each other before others, not to flatter Not to make up things that aren't true, but to put the strengths of others on full display to the glory of God. And that encourages us, doesn't it? When somebody you respect, somebody you love, somebody you're close to gives you an encouraging word rather than always a critical word, that puts some fuel in your fire, doesn't it? That puts some wind behind your sails. That encourages you to press on for the glory of God. Because you know you're being purposeful. You're being used. It's a great encouragement to us. I think Jesus shows us how to do that even in this little lesson with John the Baptist. Little principles to learn in these narratives that sometimes we don't just take away. Sometimes we skim over. But how important is it for us to publicly encourage and affirm one another's strengths to the glory of God? It's a way to put others before yourself. So, the herald is exalted. Point number three, the herald and the king rejected. The herald and the king rejected. Now, to kind of zoom out and see the big narrative here, Matthew 11 and 12 marks a big transition in Jesus' ministry. 
it kind of shifts. It turns. Jesus starts to teach in parables. And he does that strategically to hide the truth from some and to expose it to others. He turns his attention more outward, not just focused on Israel or the Jews, but he begins to minister outward to the Gentiles, to the nations. He stops talking at this point about the imminence of the kingdom. It's interesting. And he now starts to talk about it as something that is going to arrive in the future with his second coming. There's a shift that we see happen. And Jesus makes this interesting transitionary remark. After he makes this great statement about who John is, the greatest to ever be born of women, he then says this, Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The one, the one who you might deem as least significant that is in the kingdom of heaven is in a greater position than John is today. Uh, Jesus doesn't say this to diminish the value or role of John, but rather to make a rebuking point to his crowds. It's a point about his kingdom and their rejection of it. As valuable and exalted as John's role was as herald for the king and his kingdom, he is in a less fortunate place, a less fortunate position than the least, the most insignificant, quote-unquote, person That is in the future kingdom of God. That's what I believe the interpretation is. Because the kingdom is under attack at this point. Look at the next verse, verse 12. He says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. It has been attacked. And the violent take it by force. The offer of the kingdom, the gospel call, has been rejected, been refused, has received the Heisman stiff arm. They don't want anything to do with it, the Jewish world. They've not been receptive to the call of John. They've not been receptive to the Lord Jesus. In fact, they've retaliated and turned back to attack them. They've rejected clear biblical prophecy. Jesus says in verse 13, all the prophets... And the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who's to come. But they were unwilling. He says, you refuse to listen to the cry of your kin. Your kinfolk. Me and John of Israel. Look at he, he compares it to children sitting in the marketplaces. And they're calling to their playmates, their friends, their kin. Listen, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We played a dirge and you... We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. You're not playing along. And not just not playing along, but they're retaliating and attacking the king and his herald. He says, John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, well, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is like, we can't win with these guys. We can't win. They're always finding an excuse, a reason, some form of retaliation, some false narrative to attack us with. They have full-on rejected us. And I think there's a lesson in here for people who do reject Jesus. There is always some kind of excuse. Some reasoning. Some argument. Some empty accusation. And they are so hard to please. 
But at the end, their accusations are lies. They're not proven true. Because Jesus makes this statement. He says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Claiming to be wise, they're fools. And it's going to show. It's all going to shake out in the end. The truth will be revealed. The truth will be shown. Proof is in the pudding. The king and his herald will be found innocent in the end. And this whole generation, Jesus says, what do I compare this generation, these people in, the, in this place? He makes a comparison for them. But he essentially says they're going to be the ones who f- will be found the fool. But to what shall I compare this generation? Jesus is going to compare them to somebody and they're not going to like it. But before we even get there, I have a question for you. What is your response to Jesus' call, gospel call, to repent and believe in Him for salvation? What is your heart's response to that gospel call? Have you repented of your sin and surrendered to Jesus Christ? You know, it's really easy to play the religious game, to attend Sunday service, to wear a Christian name tag, and not truly receive Christ and not truly repent of your sin. It's very easy to do that. In fact, these people in Israel, in Capernaum, in Chorazin, and in Bethsaida, they were good people. They were good people. Good, devout, religious Jews. And yet Jesus is about to give them a cutting rebuke that sinks them. And I wonder about some of you out there going to church your whole life, again, putting on the face, the externals of religion, but not truly receiving Christ, repenting of your sin from the heart. Have you done so? Or will you, in the end, be exposed as the fool, just as these people from these cities are? Let's look at, finally, the consequence for unrepentance. The consequence for unrepentance. It says in verse 20, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He denounces them. To denounce means to mock or disgrace them. To publicly shame them. It's no secret. Jesus doesn't whisper a diss behind their back. All these fools. He publicly rebukes them. Shames them. Puts them to open shame. This generation of Israel has wholesale rejected their Messiah. Do you think God is going to give them the promises of the kingdom? Do you think God is going to give them the land, the prosperity, the blessing, the peace that He promised to them? No, not this generation. He won't. This generation has rejected Him. The generation who receives those promises repents, looks on to Him whom they've pierced, repents of their sin and entrusts themselves to it. So those promises will be fulfilled in a future generation, not this one. This generation will receive and experience consequences. Of their rejection. Like I said, he's going to compare this generation to people. 
And he compares the city of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum with the cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Now, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum are all these cities and towns around Galilee. Those are the places where Jesus ministered, okay? Actual cities around Galilee that he ministered. That's where Jesus has been preaching, teaching, and healing, uh, according to the text, where most of his mighty works had been done in these three cities. Now, Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom are notoriously wicked cities from the past, who Jesus compares them to. Tyre and Sidon were wealthy empires at a time, uh, seaports in the uh, Mediterranean. And they were rebuked by God through the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, for their pride, their boasting in their wealth, and their worship of the Baals. They arrogantly opposed God and his people. God promised to destroy them, and he did. In fact, it's very interesting how the island, or once was an island of Tyre, was flattened. You remember Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great brought that city to rubble. And God promised that he would raise up a foreign nation that would obliterate Tyre. And it happened in history. Happened in history. Interesting story. We don't have time to go into it. But Tyre and Sidon, what you need to know, arrogantly boastful, promised by God to be destroyed, and they were. Destroyed. Sodom. You might... Be more familiar with that city from Genesis 19. It's where we get the word sodomy. It's the city of sexual deviations. It's the city that God burned to the ground as a symbol of his wrath against all sin and wickedness. It would have been very offensive to anybody or to the people in these Galilean villages to be compared to to those cities. How can you compare us to them? They were wicked. They were judged by God ruthlessly. Maybe they thought because of their religiosity, because they were good people, quote unquote, that they would be first in Christ's kingdom. Jesus declares quite the opposite. Here's the mockery. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had the privilege and honor of the Christ, Lord of heaven and earth, walking among them, preaching and teaching and healing them. God in the flesh called out to them, and still they didn't repent. Jesus says, Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, they didn't have that privileged visit from me. They didn't have me preaching, teaching, and healing among them. They didn't get that privilege. If they did get that privilege, he said, they would have repented and still been here today. So here's the sobering promise for this generation. He said, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for them than for you. You're not going to have the first place in my kingdom, he says. You're going to have the lowest place in hell. Wow. Quite a rebuke from the Lord Jesus. And this rebuke goes to the religious, quote-unquote, good people who rejected the gospel message. Either confident in their own works, confident in their own empty religion, but did not receive Christ as Lord and Savior. 
He says, you know, as wicked as these cities were in history's past, as heinous as their sin was, as bad as their judgment, your judgment will be worse. Why? Because they did not repent, verse 20. To repent means to turn around, to change your mind. It's a change of mind that results in a change of direction. You were going that way, but now you're going this way. You were going headfirst towards your sin, towards your idolatry, but you've turned around and embraced Christ. Turned back to God. Repentance always accompanies true faith. In other words, you don't really believe unless you've repented. This is the only appropriate response when God opens your eyes to the truth. Listen to me. God is holy. Perfect. He alone is good. And He demands perfection from you to enter His kingdom. Matthew 5, verse 20. You are a sinner. You fall short of the perfection, the glory of God, self-inflicted and cursed with sin through and through. Even your good works are filthy rags. Unacceptable in God's sight because they're tainted with selfishness, with self-ambition, with self-preservation. We're all sinners. Romans 3. There is no one righteous, not good. Therefore, you're in trouble. You're in deep trouble. Left to yourself and your own devices, you cannot stand before holy God. You need a Savior. You need the Christ. A Messiah. One who can take your place. A perfect man who lived a perfect, sinless life. One who took your place on the cross and suffered the consequences for sin in your place. Someone who can defeat sin and death. Who by His power raised from the dead. Offering newness of life in Him. You need Jesus Jesus, the one who did all these things. And when you see him for who he is, the way, the truth, and the life, the only appropriate response, listen, is to admit, I can't do it. I am a sinner. I need you. Forgive me of my sin. I'm turning from it and I'm clinging with my whole heart to you and you alone for salvation. Repentance and faith. I'm giving up on my Righteous works that are really filthy rags. I'm giving up on the sinful lifestyle. I'm giving up on these idols that don't really fulfill me. And I am turning from them and clinging wholeheartedly to you, Jesus Christ. That's the only appropriate response to Jesus Christ. That's what he called for. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. And what we're going to see is gracious invitation in the next passage. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest for your soul. Have you done this, friend? Have you repented of your sin and entrusted your life, your soul, your eternity to Jesus Christ and Him alone? J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, The Expository Thoughts on the Gospels, writes this. He says, May we all think often about Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Let us settle in our minds that it will never do to be content with merely hearing and and liking the gospel. We must go further than this. We must actually repent and be converted. 
We must lay hold of Christ and become one with Him. Till then, we're in awful danger. It will prove more tolerable to have lived in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom than to have heard the gospel in England and at last die unconverted. J.C. Ryle, a minister in England. I can change that country name to America and it would apply directly to you. It will prove more tolerable to have lived in Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom than to have heard the gospel in America at Summit Bible Church on March 12, 2023, and at last die unconverted. Don't let that be you. Come to Christ today. Repent of your sins and entrust yourself to Him and Him alone. I understand and I embrace the responsibility that my work as a gospel preacher, it is sobering. There are the thrills. There are the thrills of preaching the gospel and people receive it. They come to saving faith and then they're baptized. And I get to rejoice and celebrate that with him. But there's also the weight that the words I speak are sometimes like lead stones that sink your soul deeper into hell because you reject them. And you're held responsible for hearing, but not responding. I pray that that's not you this morning. I pray that for you, the words of the gospel would be like wings that deliver you up out of the miry clay and throw you to Jesus Christ in heaven. That would fill you with joy, with hope, with eternal life, with assurance. To free you from your sin. Repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do so today. And Christian, if you're wrestling with doubt, find assurance in the promises of God through His Word. Go back to the book, the words you know that are true, and remind your soul of these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we ask You now to do what only You can do. By Your Spirit, work in the hearts of the unconverted here today, that they would come to see Your truth, the truth of Jesus Christ, that they would fly to Jesus, turn from their sin and fly to Jesus today and trust Him with their whole heart and whole life. I pray that You would work in their hearts to surrender to You. And God, that You would encourage us and ensure us as Christians, Lord, we, we sometimes doubt, we sometimes struggle, and we need those assurances of your promises. We need those reminders in our life. Help us to find those reminders in the fellowship as we interact with other believers. And then just more fundamentally, that we would find the assurances of those promises in your word. That we would be people of the book, clinging to your word as true and trust it with our whole heart. Because we know you're faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.